Coach Prime lands at Colorado. Wilner and I will talk about it, plus the Pac-12 Bowl games. We take a deep dive. All of that on a new episode of Kanzano and Wilner, the podcast. What's better than one, John? Here's Johnny. Hmm, nobody really knows. That's why we put two of them together. This is Kanzano and Wilner, a.k.a. John and John. Hey, it's John Canzano, and I am here with John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group, as we are every week. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, uh, reach out, hit that subscribe button. Make sure that you don't miss a thing. You won't miss an episode if you're subscribed. It'll pop up right on your mobile device. Uh, if you're if you're not subscribed, you run the risk of missing one of these episodes, and I don't want that to happen to you. I want you uh, to have us at your fingertips, so make sure you do that. Now, Wilner, I'm going to start with a story today, because my parents are visiting from out of town. They're visiting us and happen to be having lunch with my wife and my parents. And the subject of my childhood came up. I grew up in a family. We had four kids. My dad played professional baseball. We were a very active family when I was growing up. And we did things together. And one of the things that we did is we did fun runs as a family. Now, I don't know how we got into this. In fact, my parents don't even remember how we got into this. But we would do like the turkey trot and we would do like a 5K. One time we did a 10K. We ran at midnight and held glow sticks and it was cool. It was like on New Year's Eve. It was a great, you know, good memory as a kid. And so my parents and got to talking about that and with my wife and my wife was kind of going, well, why don't we do those things? But do, have you ever done that? Like as a family, do you guys do any kind of activities? Do your kin with you? I know you're a runner. Uh, I wouldn't say we do runs, maybe bike rides. I'm the only one in our family who actually enjoys running. It, that would be tough. Uh, <laughs> I, I would have a better chance of pulling some teeth than I would get a family run going. Yeah. Well, the topic of conversation turned to whether or not uh, we should be doing this right now with our kids, my wife and kids. Like, shouldn't we be partaking in fun runs as a family? Like, what kind of family are we if we don't run together and we don't give these kids the same experience that I, I had as a kid? And so I got, I Googled it and found that there happens to be a fun run that is a Christmas-themed holiday fun run that is taking place 13 days from now. We have decided that we're going to run in this fun run. It's a 5K. But the problem is none of us have been training. And so I'm kind of wondering, like, how fast can I get in enough shape that I can run a 5K without embarrassing myself or honking? And... Uh, you know, I ride the bike, I do the stationary bike, I do some workout, but I'm not running all the time like you are. Like, I couldn't just run a 5K right now and bust hump. I'd be more pacing myself on the 5K. Like, I have no doubt I could do three miles. Uh, you know, most of us should be. Like, you should be able to do a three-mile run impromptu. Like, because you never know where you're going to have to pack a bag and you're just going to have to run, right? So we should all be able to do that. But I need to kind of figure out in the next 13 days, is there any kind of training that I can do? I believe you can. I like your chances because I don't think you have to be able to actually run the 3.1 in your training. If you can get to two, two and a half, then you just let adrenaline take you for those that last stretch during the during the run. I, I, it, it, this is what we're faced against. Now, the kids don't know they're running. They're going to get home from school and we're going to inform them tonight at dinner that uh, they will be running a 5K as part of their Christmas vacation uh, and uh, we'll let it rip and see what happens. So I'll give people an update there. But if you have suggestions on 
you know, how much running should I do? Should I go out today and just run, you know, run a couple miles? Should I jog it? Like, I'm not trying to break a record here. I'm just trying not to embarrass myself and honk with people uh, all around me. When was uh, the last time you ran regularly? I, I don't, I'm not a runner. I'm not, I'm more of a, I ride the Peloton or I'll play some basketball or I'll do, you know, I'll do exercise, but I'm not like, I'm like your kids. Um, like mentally, I don't get out on the road like all these other Oregonians and run around year round. I just don't do it. It's not my thing. So I'm a little concerned about, like, I know I could run probably a couple miles with no problem. Uh, I don't think, I'm not worried about the kind of the cardio part, but running is very different than bike riding. And it's certainly different than being on like a stationary bike, which is not running at all. I thought that there was a state law in Oregon that if you live there, you have to run. I'll tell you what the, I do is I will drive along and maybe I'm on a country road and I see somebody running and it's raining and I'll say, hey, good for him or good for her. Yes. That's as close <laughs> as I get to running right right now in, this, in, in my current condition. But I'm going to do it and I'll give an update. So I have 13 days. If you have some training tips for me, you can uh, tweet at me and get me those. I'm John Canzano. You can read me now at johnconzano.com. Get a free subscription. Get a paid subscription. That's where I'm writing. Love to see you there. I'm with John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group. You can find him at uh, pack12hotline.com or on Twitter at Wilner Hotline. Wilner, let's jump right into the big news of the week. Neon Dion, formerly Neon Dion, now Coach Dion. Dion Sanders to Colorado. Um, his introductory news conference was an absolute circus. Videos circulating of him telling players, hey, you know, jump in the portal. But uh, what, what are your immediate takeaways for Colorado, for the Pac-12, for Dion? Well, for myself, the prayers have been answered, right? I mean, it is going to be fascinating to watch this thing. Uh, I briefly considered moving, uh, you know, relocating the hotline headquarters to Boulder just because uh, it, every day is going to be a story with him. And I think that's good for, the, it's great for Colorado and it's great for the Pac-12. It makes the place more interesting, right? I mean, Pac-12 is not exactly the home of, yeah, it's not like the SEC, right? Where you got these super interesting personality coaches who will do anything, say anything, uh, Pac-12 is more just kind of a uh, within the uh, a framework of you know more traditional, more conservative approaches to coaching and how you conduct yourself. And and Sanders is going to be completely different, right? And I think that's great. And I think it's it's going to help Colorado immensely. He's got a reputation of traveling, you know. With he's got a team that is coming with him to Boulder. I think it's going to be really interesting to see. How the team, the marketing team, the publicist, his his own PR people, how that is going to go over in a relatively quiet uh, media contingent in Boulder that covers Colorado football. And so I think it's going to be a little bit of a circus and an adjustment, I think, for the people at Colorado. Uh, but I think this is a no-brainer hire. I mean, it struck me that, you know, the Big Ten Championship and the SEC Championship games are going on on Saturday. And Rick George, the Colorado AD... Essentially, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to say he upstaged him, but they were talking about the Deion Sanders hire on both of those broadcasts. I mean, he just, you know, Rick George did a cannonball from the high dive uh, and and made a splashy hire. Do I, do I, am I sure it's going to work out? I'm not sure. But it fits right now if you want to matter. And I think Colorado has had, you know, it's been a flat line. It gives them immediate life. It gives them some immediate credibility. It's outside the box. It's trying something. Um, I, I kind of fashion it to, you know, Mike Leach to Washington State or 
Jerry Glanville was hired by Portland State years ago. At least they were trying something, right? At least there was a marketing angle to it. Fresno State hired Jerry Tarkanian long after he had had success at UNLV, and and they rode a wave of momentum with him. So I think it brings them some energy and some enthusiasm. Certainly in this transfer portal era, the you know Deion Sanders is going to matter. And then his 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 address with the players, like people are sort of taking that one snippet of him telling the players, you know, I've got my own luggage, you know, jump in the portal. I sort of liked it because I sort of liked the honesty of it, that you better be with where they're going or you better get going yourself because either get on the train or or get in the portal. And I liked that message from Deion Sanders. I think it made the conference immediately more interesting, and I think it made Media Day more interesting. Uh, and I think if you're the Pac-12, uh, you know, I was at the championship game on Friday night, and they were buzzing there about the possibility of Deion Sanders. And the, there was some enthusiasm within the Pac-12 conference executive team for this because I think it brings some credibility to the conference, too. Oh, sure. Uh, they should expand Pac-12 Media Day next summer from one day to three and give two days to Dion and just, you know— Put everybody else on that third that third day because it is it's like the Lincoln Riley hire in a lot of ways. Obviously, not nearly as accomplished as a coach, but in terms of just generating national attention instantly, I mean, it's it's served a purpose and it's it's made Colorado more relevant than it's been in you know decades already. Colorado is more relevant than it has been in decades. What's interesting too is that there have been a whole bunch of coaching vacancies you know he's from florida right uh and his his the southeastern quadrant is his that's his home area and coaching vacancies in that area nobody hired him and colorado came in and said you know what we're gonna we're gonna take the chance and i am very curious to see just how he how he fits institutionally with the way things are done in colorado because it's going to be completely new and i think colorado is going to have to contort itself around him rather than Dion, you know, contorting himself around the way things have always been in Boulder. I had a few immediate takeaways, too, because one, as you said, that how is he going to fit there? There's going to be some academic standards at Colorado that did not exist uh, at his previous stop. So uh, will they relax some of the academic standards uh, to help him utilize the portal in a way that I think no other coach in the Pac-12 can utilize it. Like, I think Dion's got some inherent advantages there, but he's going to need some help from from University of Colorado. Second part is, you know, I don't know who he's bringing on his staff. I want to see the makeup of his staff because I think kids are going to want to play for Dion Sanders. So I think he's going to get talent that Colorado has not seen in some time. Now, can he surround himself with a coaching staff that can help coach them up? Third thing was, look, and I think you tweeted about this, this is a conference that has no black men's basketball coaches. But in football, the Pac-12 had David Shaw at Stanford. It had Carl Durrell at Colorado, and it had Herm Edwards at Arizona State. And now all three of those coaches are out of the conference for one reason or another, two of them dismissed. And so I think Colorado deserves some credit here for not just the splashy hire and an interesting hire, but also for looking hard at a diversity candidate and bringing some diversity to that head coaching circle in the conference. Yeah, well, the issue with men's basketball too is there haven't been any black head coaches on men's basketball now for I think it's five years. Uh, and then, and you think back two years ago, right now, the end of the 2020 football season, 
Kevin Sumlin, Herm Edwards, Carl Durrell, Jimmy Lake, David Shaw, all gone. And so this was an important hire on multiple levels. And and Colorado, it's it's Colorado's third consecutive blackhead football coach, right? Because Mel Tucker, then Durrell, and now Dion. And it's clearly important to the Buffaloes, and that's great. And it does, I think, take a little bit of pressure off everybody else. We'll see where which direction Stanford goes, uh, but it it definitely kind of helps helps the you know the the view of the collective. But bottom line, the diversity hiring in major college football is still woefully behind where it should be. I I also got to thinking about the money involved in the media rights negotiation because Rick George made a comment in the news yes. conference about not having the money but knowing that it's coming. And I I'm reading the tea leaves here, but the murmur is that this conference is going to get better than expected media rights money. And I'm wondering, I'm waiting to see the figures on Deion Sanders' contract, but I'm wondering if Colorado made him an offer he couldn't refuse, knowing that they were going to have more money available to them than they originally anticipated. Yeah. So I'm keeping an eye on that. I think it's about $6 I think it's close to $6 million annually, which would put him up with Ham. Kyle Whittingham. Yep. Uh, Lincoln Riley is somewhere way north of that. We don't know because SC doesn't have to disclose but uh, six million or close to it is a uh, almost double what Darrell was getting, and that's a that's a huge number for Colorado. Yeah, so that tells me that they know they're getting some media rights money that maybe they weren't anticipating. But I think it's a hell of an investment. I think it's smart. I think uh, you know if it if it works out, uh, Rick George is going to look really smart. If it doesn't work out, I think he still looks smart because I think look at the look at the conversation and the narrative around Colorado football. It has shifted. You know, their season ticket sales are going to be, it's going to be a bonanza. And sponsors are going to want to be part of this. And they are going to feast in the portal. And I think it creates an interesting outpost in the Pac-12 that is very different than some of the other conference, some of the other conference members right now. And uh, I'm kind of wondering what the coaches in this conference that hire too. Uh, yeah, but, you do yeah. wonder, like, who who's affected most by this, right? Man, that's a good question. I'm because you know I don't think it affects Utah. I don't think nope. it affects. Maybe it affects Oregon and Washington more than anyone because just because of you know if we throw the LA schools out, if they are really are both leaving, then I think the next you know two splashiest recruiters in this conference right now are going to be Oregon and Washington. So I think that you're going to see. But I also think that. I think Colorado is going to be recruiting Florida in a way that the others were not. And I think Colorado will get into Texas, yep. um, you know, in a way that it hasn't in some time. So I think this is just this is great for the Pac-12. It's a win for the Pac-12. It's a win for Colorado. It is. And we'll see. And I don't think, you know, there's been a lot of pushback. Oh, you know, he's going to leave in two or three years. Who cares? Right. <laughs> right. If he wins and they're they're you know, they're eight and four, nine and three in a couple of years. That that's fine. That's what they want, right? So who cares? I mean, there's no nobody thinks that Deion Sanders is going to coach in Boulder for ten or twelve years, right? This is a get us back to relevance, get us on the right trajectory. Higher, uh, and if he wins and he's gone in three years, the, they'll be better off. The Pac-12 has seven bowl eligible teams. Uh, we got a Rose Bowl, obviously, with Utah and Penn State. Cotton Bowl with USC and Tulane, uh, the uh, Washington and Texas in the Alamo Bowl, Oregon State and Florida in the Vegas Bowl, and 
Oregon and North Carolina in the Holiday Bowl, UCLA and Pitt in the Sun Bowl, and then the L.A. Bowl is Fresno State and Washington State. Wilner, what jumped out to you when you saw the bowl matchups and just your takeaways on the Pac-12's bowl uh, lineup? Well, first I thought it was important that SC got in the cotton, right? It's the first time the Pac-12 has had two teams in the New York Six since the 2017 season. That uh, that was real important financially and just for prestige. Uh, the two the two schools that you know uh, kind of uh, registered with me were Oregon State, right? Uh, basically playing above its previous bowl uh, watermark in Las Vegas against Florida, right? I mean that's great for the Beavers and and they deserve it after a nine win season. And then UCLA fall into the sun, right? The sun is not exactly the most popular bowl. Uh, out here and there's you got a nine and three team that was ranked most of the season and they're the ones we knew one of those teams one of the nine win teams was going to be dropping to the sun and it turns out it was UCLA but I th- just think uh, like to me Oregon State other than Utah obviously getting to the Rose to me Oregon State's a big winner yeah and I think too like I always look at bowl season you know I, and the story that comes to mind I wrote about this a little bit is you know I was covering Purdue football in 1998, and Purdue went to the Alamo Bowl, and they encountered Kansas State. And people don't remember 1998 BCS era. Kansas State was in the Big 12 championship game. They were 11 and 0, undefeated, and they lost the Big 12 championship game to Texas A&M, and ended up going from hey they were in the top two in the BCS poll, all the way falling all the way to the Alamo Bowl. They did not want to be in the Alamo Bowl. So badly that the game kicked off. This is a Drew Brees Purdue team that was unranked. The game kicks off. Kansas State is the number four team in the country. Purdue's unranked. And uh, Kansas State's about to go on offense and they call timeout. And we're all going, what the hell just happened? And it turns out that Michael Bishop, the Kansas State quarterback, forgot his helmet. He left it in the locker room. And I, in that moment, I was like, do they want to be here? Like, do, And so, so much of bowl season comes down to teams that really want to be there. And I think the Pac-12 has some teams that really want to be in bowl games. Utah wants to be in that Rose Bowl. They want to avenge the loss to Ohio State a year ago. Oregon State wants to be in that Vegas Bowl. Like I think they'd want a piece of Florida. And Florida's not going to be without Anthony Richardson, who is, you know, opting out and and leaving. So uh, and so I think you know that'll be really interesting to see that game. Yeah. But I think as we go down the bowl list, I was starting to go okay. How many of these teams really want to be in these bowl games? Now, I'm not sure about USC and Tulane. I'm not. But I think Washington wants to be in that Alamo Bowl against Texas. I think Washington's going to show up to play. I think Oregon State's going to show up to play. Really curious about Oregon in the Holiday Bowl. Looks like Bo Nix is going to play quarterback. They will show up to play if he's in that game. And then, you know, we have to wonder about UCLA and the Sun Bowl. So I'm worried about the two L.A. schools. But I think Washington State will show up to play in the L.A. Bowl in what will be a great matchup with Fresno State and Jake Ayner. Yeah, I mean, for most of these teams, they can they lost games last year, right? Uh, and some of them lost badly. So in in that regard, it's a chance to kind of make amends. But I'm with you. I I wonder too about Oregon. How many guys are going to opt out? Yeah, you know, losing the way they they were so close to playing for the Pac-12 championship and the way that Oregon State game ended. I I wonder. Even though Knicks can you know kind of supercharge them emotionally, I I don't know. Yeah, uh, I'll and, be and you have taking to, a wait to yeah. wait and see. Will, will you know Oregon's place in a Holiday Bowl is a Holiday Bowl a big deal to a Duck fan? I don't think it is, but we talk about expectations, sort of framing everything in a college football season. Oregon State is thrilled to be in that Vegas Bowl. They're thrilled to have a chance to win ten games. 
Uh, I think Utah, Washington State, Washington uh, will all show up to play in those games. Yeah, uh, they should. They should. Pac-12 has had a lot of trouble in bowl games. So this is, you know, we'll see. Will the postseason kind of mirror the regular season where there was a, a you know, obvious uptick in the level of performance? And, and we'll see. Uh, so much of it depends on on who's playing and who's opting out uh, for both the Pac-12 teams and and the uh, their opponents. That's that's the biggest thing these days. Is I, think, I, think we're gonna, I think one of the things the bowl games should look into is – you know, they are sponsored, you know, the Tony the Tiger Sun Bowl or whatever. You know, it's they're sponsored. Why not include an NIL bonus for the players who are playing in the game? Yeah. Keep I players from opting sense. out. Hey, you're going to get 10 grand to play in this game. Hey, you're going to get, you know, it, and I, I think we're not far away from that kind of stuff happening in some of these bowl games that are not, you know, the New Year Six and beyond. And by the way. You were looking at the playoff drought for the Pac-12. What did you find out when you kind of examined that? Well, you know, what I was thinking is I was comparing the Pac-12 to the Big 12 on that standpoint. Because here you got TCU is the first Big 12 team other than Oklahoma to make the playoff. How is it that the Big 12 was able to do this? And I was kind of thinking, you know, it wasn't that good a league this year. At least if you're going to if you're gonna base it on the, the playoff rankings, right? I think the Big 12 had three teams in the playoff. Pac-12 had six, uh, three teams in the final rankings. Pac-12 had six. Pac-12 can't get a team out uh, of the season with zero or one losses to qualify the, for the playoff, and the Big 12 can. And I just started to think, well, why is that? And I know that SC, you know, a lot of people say SC blew it, and they did blow it. But this was a really good, you know, the top of the conference was very good this year. It was going to be hard for anybody to get through 12 and 1 or 13 and 0. So I started thinking, well, when has the Pac 12 during this drought had seasons that mirrored the Big 12 season this year, where there weren't very many good teams? And all you needed was one to get through and go 12 and 1 or 13 and 0. And I, you know what, I started thinking about the team in the game Oregon 2019. At ASU, right? You remember that game? The yes. Ducks? Yeah. They had yeah. one loss. They lost to Auburn in the opening game. They were going to the playoff, and then they lose a game at ASU. They're two touchdown favorites. They got Justin Herbert. ASU had lost four games in a row. That was a game. If if Oregon had found a way to win that game, because then they went and beat Utah in the Pac-12 championship, that's what Oregon needed to get in the playoff. That was the, that was the moment the Pac-12 – should have broken this drought and Oregon couldn't do what TCU did, which was get through with zero or one losses. So I, I just, I found it interesting because you got to wonder six years and the Pac-12 has not been able to get a team through with zero or one losses. And to me, that was, that was the moment that was the team. And that was the game that really, that's where the the playoff bids should have happened. Yeah, I was there that night, and it was uh, it was a strange night. And I remember walking around the field before the game and noting to some other riders that Oregon was a little flat in in the warmups. They didn't have the same energy to them, and and I think part of it is that the season's so damn long. And I think another part of it is that I think Mario Cristobal's coaching style wears people out. I think it wears assistant coaches out. I think it wore players out. I think there's just a there was a mental exhaustion for that team by that point of the season, but it's no excuse. They were playing for a lot in a game that really mattered 
And they ran into a quarterback and a couple of receivers that they could not stop. And yeah, I felt like they got conservative as well on the offensive side of the ball. I mean, you have a quarterback who's going to go on and play in the NFL and light it up, and they just did not utilize him. And and uh, it was a shame that they lost that game. I remember Phil Knight was on the sideline, LeGarrette Blunt, the uh, former Duck running back, was visiting, and just the energy around the team that night was flat. Yeah, that that was the big one. The other one I came up with, just looking back, with like the the near misses for the Pac-12, the USC in 2017, so that was Sam Darnold's last year, SC finished the regular season with with two losses. One of them, they got beat badly at Notre Dame. But the other one was at Washington State. They lost by like by field goal early in the season. I think it was a Friday night game in Pullman. And if they had figured out a way to win that one, then the Notre Dame loss wouldn't have mattered. And they would have been in the playoff that year with at, uh, at 12 and one. And that one was a case where the Pac-12 kind of uh, you know, stepped in it by scheduling. That was back when they were scheduling all those Friday night road games uh, for teams that had already played on the road the previous week, and they hadn't figured out that that was a competitive disadvantage. Uh, those were the two, USC in 2017, and then the big one, Oregon in 2019. To me, those were the the big missed opportunities. And now we've got right. We got to, there's at least one more year here where we're talking about Pac-12 playoff drought. It's going to end in 2024 with the expansion, but uh, it, they have not been able to do to generate a team that could do what TCU was able to do this year in a in a kind of a mediocre conference. Yeah, and hey, look, I was in the stadium in Vegas on Friday night and watched what Utah did to USC, and I'm sure our listeners all saw it, but it was a remarkable performance by a Kyle Whittingham team that was playing as if it was playing in a Super Bowl, and USC had Caleb Williams in it, and as soon as Williams was neutralized with the injury, um, you know, Utah knew exactly what to do. It was like watching a boxer just continue to go to the body, the body, the body, and pretty soon, you know, it's it's knockout. And uh, just a wild performance, and I know the Utah fans were really excited and thrilled, but there was a uh, there was an undercurrent in the stadium, too, of the U- USC fan who was disappointed And I think the people that were rooting to see the Pac-12 break that drought were disappointed. Now, I know that getting to the Cotton Bowl still results in, you know, uh, $4 million for the conference and that's $333,000 per member. But I think the stigma now still follows the Pac-12 that it was unable to get into a playoff another year. Yep. Yeah, I thought all along the conference would have been better off with SC despite the the fact they're leaving, getting into the playoff. That was... That was a, to me, that win, that was entirely about the culture of Utah football that Kyle Whittingham has built there because they're on the ropes, right? 17, was it 17-3? There's 14-3 and they're going in and Utah holds them to a field goal and then and everything changes. And that's the kind of, that is a, a culture win. I, I think toughness, experience, just trusting everybody, uh, all your teammates, I don't know, you know, I'm not sure anybody else in the conference would have won that game because I think that there's a good chance everybody else at that moment would have folded. But Utah, with all their experience and the culture that he's built, was able to kind of hold on and get, and hold him to a field goal, right? If that's a touchdown, it's everything's different. I saw, I ran into the Utah coaching staff. Uh, at halftime as they were leaving the coaching box, as they were getting on the elevators in the press box and they were going down, 
I happened to be standing there. I said hi to Andy Ludwig, the offensive coordinator who I've known for a while. And, you know, they're very businesslike, right? It was just a just a wave and a hello. Um, ran into the staff again because I was down on the field as the game ended. And then I headed back to the press box right after the game to start writing. And the elevator opens and it's the Utah coaching staff and they're getting off the elevator. There was no whooping. There was no high-fiving. There was no shouting. They were like, I couldn't tell if they had won the game or lost the game. And I got onto the elevator and I asked the elevator operator, I said to her, I said, hey, when they got on the elevator, it was like, what's, what was the chatter like? And she said, I couldn't tell if they had won or lost. And she said, I'm, I, I operate this elevator in NFL games and other bowl games, and you can always tell who wins the game. I think that speaks to the Utah coaching staff and how even-keeled they are, how businesslike they are, and it goes back to Kyle Whittingham. I mean, the longest-tenured coach in the conference, the best culture in the conference. When you think about the other culture programs in the Pac-12, who are they? Like, to me, it's Oregon State and maybe UCLA with Chip Kelly. He's got his own culture, even though it's different. But when I look at the longest-tenured coaches, it's Whittingham, and then it's Jonathan Smith and Chip Kelly. There's something to the continuity and building culture that uh, obviously fosters you know, rich culture. Yeah. Well, and you got to have continuity and you got to have uh, not only with the staff, but the head coach, right? So many, there's so many teams that have new coaches. Most of them have had new coaches in the last two, three years. So uh, it definitely stands out with those that have that, that longevity at the top, right? Do you think Whittingham will win, should win Pac-12 coach of the year? The the coaches, I believe have, as we record this on Monday, I believe all the coaches have already voted and they are going to announce the uh, postseason awards on Tuesday, all conference team on Tuesday. You think Woodingham's going to win it? I think he's well liked. I think he's respected. I think what he did on Friday night is going to be difficult to ignore. So if uh, I'm looking at it, I think it's probably Whittingham. If not, I think it's got to be Jonathan Smith at Oregon State, who has nine wins, or Kalen DeBoer in his first year at Washington. I mean, I think you could give it, you could justify or make an argument for any one of those three candidates, but nobody else. Yeah, I would have thought Lincoln Riley if they had won, right? Uh, then you got conference champion, playoff team, but you factor in the the popularity component to this whole thing, and and I'm guessing that the USC coaches is, is not gonna not gonna win it. But it'll be real interesting. It's they've got a lot of good candidates for player of the year, offensive player of the year, and head coach, and it ref, that's reflective of the season we saw. I'm John Canzano. You can read me at johnconzano.com. That's where you find me. I'll give you an update on our 5K uh, run uh, and our run project doing on our next episode. Uh, Wilner, uh, it's been fun this college football season. We're going to keep this thing going, though, and I encourage people to subscribe, leave feedback. Make sure you subscribe. If you subscribe to the podcast, you don't miss anything. A new episode, uh, as soon as we post it, it'll pop up on your mobile device. So especially if you have an iPhone, just click on that purple podcast app and subscribe to us or wherever you're listening to this. Just hit that subscribe button and make sure you don't miss anything. Yeah, and we are going to do an upcoming episode entirely based on your questions. So make sure you hit us up uh, on Twitter or email with your questions and we will get to those here in the next couple of weeks just an entire episode based on that make sure you ask john about his training methods uh <laughs> the, his diet oh <laughs> that's the you know that's the key oh is, is the it diets. great you gotta make, that's one more thing make, I, yeah one more thing i need to think about 
That's right. That's right. Diet. So, and stretching. Make sure you get some yoga in for recovery purposes. There's going to be no uh, yoga. I can't wait. This is going to be, There'll uh, be no yoga. Big, big drama here. Yeah. I, look, my thing is, I don't want to embarrass myself and uh, end up throwing up, uh, you know, a mile and a half, two miles into this thing. So, pacing myself and at least in the next 13 days, getting out and trying to build towards uh, running a mile and a half, two miles. You know, I, I, I don't think I'll run three miles until we run the race. Thankfully, it's not a 10K because uh, I'd give myself a 50-50 of finishing it. But, well, I'll give you an update. If you have suggestions and you're a runner, uh, in 13 days, can I condition myself to be ready to run a 5K? You let me know. Thanks, everyone.